Micah chapter 2. When we read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. And when we read from the prophet Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. We see the time frame of their ministry would have been during the time the living God of the Bible sent his word to Micah. Take note that more than one messenger of God was sent to proclaim the word of God to his people. These are three prophets that we know about. These prophets have been called the writing prophets for obvious reasons that you and I have written material from them. But this in no way supports as evidence that these were the only three messengers of God at work in the attempt to restore back to himself the chosen people of the living God. Let this truth be a great reminder of the living God's love for you, whoever you are out there. As you may take extreme measures to avoid that one person that is full of the Holy Spirit of the living God, who has been talking to you about his or her wonderful God of life and restoration. We, as men and women of the living God, have no power to save you from the judgment that is coming to mankind. It is the living God of the Bible that has created all things for himself. He is the one that created you and loves you for it. You could very well be surrounded by more than one of his messengers at the same time. As his Holy Spirit pleads with you to come and meet him before your dying day, when you will most certainly face him to hear your judgment. As Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah simultaneously pronounce the word of the living God to the children of Israel as a whole, we started with the first chapter of Micah which dealt with the sins of the people against God, namely speaking in the way of idolatry. Chapter 2 will deal with the sins of the people against their fellow man. Verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. They covet fields and seize them. When I read that, it begs the question as to whether Micah was referring to a particular incident when he pronounced these words to the rulers of the land. Though the word of this true and right prophet of the living God was directed to what the then government had become as a whole, we do have an event in the Bible that did occur, which would come to give us a brief look at how the land was being governed at the time. In 1 Kings chapter 21, you're going to see of an event that occurred. 
And this is what happened. I'm going to just give you the, the brief summary. Let me read for you the highlights of chapter 21. Verses 1 through 3 says this, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near and next to my house. And for it, I will give you a, another vineyard, better than it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you what it's worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. On down, verses 7 through 10, it reads this, Then Jezebel his wife said to him, You now exercise your authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters to Ahab in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city of Naboth. She wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him, to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. Ahab wanted Naboth's piece of property. Naboth refused to give it to Ahab. Ahab told his wicked wife, Jezebel. Jezebel plotted and made a plan against Naboth, Naboth on how to get that piece of property. We saw here, she sent letters to pronounce a feast, have Naboth as the high honor guest, of which have scoundrels sitting in front of him or next to him, and during the feast have them say, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 6, why would that be significant? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, in their law, the very law of the Jews, it says this, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And this is exactly the reason why Jezebel specifically wrote in the letters to have two witnesses to falsely accuse Naboth. Awesome how the wicked will use the very word of God, which is true, in order to excel in their wicked plans, in their wicked ways, which exactly what Micah is saying here in chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power that is in their hands. It was God who gave them that power. It was God who put them in the ruling position of king. And look how they use God's word against his chosen people, against his very people. Verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter, 21 from 1 Kings, it reads this, And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. 
So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down, and took possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. What does Micah say? Verse 2 of chapter 2. They covet fields and they seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. That's the way the rulers were back in this time. That's why God sent all these prophets to talk against the rulers, which is what we read back in chapter 1. Now we're going to see, and we'll continue with that in chapter 3. But in chapter 2 here, God specifically is going to be addressing how the people are treating the people. You know, when the people see their leaders acting in a certain way, they most certainly will act that same way. Why? It's their example. It's the example. That's why it's so important to have good, holy, and just leaders. Because the people will then follow suit. Okay, there will be one or two, but that will rebel. That will always be the case. But as a whole, as a majority, find a good leader and you will know how the people are. Let me see how the people are, and I will know how the leader is. Verse 3, Therefore the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly, because it will be an evil time. I am now planning a disaster against the nation, God says. It's funny, because... In the book of Proverbs, Solomon will write, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27, he says this, The one who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. God basically is telling the people of Israel and Judah as a whole, though they are a split nation, two kings, one to the north, one to the south, the message is for every, all of them, the whole nation. Now, God is telling them, this is how you're ruling the people. This is what you're doing. You're seizing their land. Guess what? You know what? It's going to come back on you. That's what's going to happen to you. The same thing that the rulers were doing to the people, God allowed for it to happen to them. Now, this closely or this looks exactly like what karma is, the Hindu belief system of karma. And if we are not careful with how we choose today what kind of a relationship we are going to have with the living God of the Bible, we also will believe as Christians that what comes around goes around. The problem in having this kind of mindset, especially if you are a Christian, is that there is no hope in the statement, what comes around goes around. We are all left with the troublesome lives of our sinful past. There is no gospel as the base for such a statement as what comes around goes around. There is no forgiveness. There is no need of repentance. This is the reality of a hopeless life. What comes around goes around. That is a hopeless statement. The difference between karma and in having a correct understanding of the nature of the living God of the Bible is that there is hope in the living God of the Bible. Therefore, the Lord says, verse 3, 
I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. Now, God does not plan evil. However, through the eyes of the rebellious heart, troublesome times most certainly do look like an evil time. But God told his people through the prophet Jeremiah 29 verse 11, he said, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the nature of God. Now, the mighty Assyrian army, they would come and take over the land of Samaria, the northern kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians' army would come and take over the capital of the northern kingdom, transporting the people to Assyria. This tragedy occurred late in Micah's ministry, which tells me that God had given the people an incredibly gracious amount of time to greatly consider the words from the prophet of the living God. Repent, which means to turn 180 degrees from continuing to do what they had become used to doing living a corrupt and deceitful life outside of God's plan for them. The rulers of the people were cheating the people, the very people God gave them to rule over. They were cheating them. The people suffered for it, though the people also were not without guilt, for they too were doing it to each other. Micah lived to see this catastrophic event in his life. We will see, as we read through the book of Micah, that God is not destroying his chosen people, but rather leading them through a time of discipline in order that he would restore them as a people back to himself, clean and holy. And that is the difference between karma and knowing and understanding who the living God of the Bible is. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus will speak to the people. And he tells them this, verses 28 and through 30, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I took this, this quote, I don't know where I got it from, but when I read it, I liked it. It said this, they who will not bend to God's yoke, the easy yoke, shall feel his iron yoke, which is exactly what the people of Israel are going to experience right now. This yoke you will not be able to remove. This iron yoke, heavy, you will not be able to remove. And that is the difference between karma, which is what comes around goes around, and having a personal relationship with the living God. Though you, there are consequences for our ill actions as a Christian, our consequences can most certainly be beneficial disciplinary action if we focus on what it was that we did, acknowledge, and take our medicine. We are seeing what God, I'm sorry, we are seeing what happened to God's people as they followed their own hearts. But let's take a look at how they came to be so wicked and rebellious. It all started somewhere. An excellent life lesson for all of us to learn as early as possible is this. 
All problems start somewhere. Are you having a problem with a brother or sister in Christ? Well, it started somewhere. Are you having a problem with your husband or with your wife? Well, it started somewhere. The list can go on. My first question that I ask myself as well as to others is this. What is your or my relationship with God? How would I or you describe it? A person's relationship with God is primary and determines all other relationships that a person will have with his or her fellow man. Micah chapter 6 verse 8, which I deemed it to be the key verse for the book of Micah. It says this, He has shown you, mainly God, namely God, has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is impossible to have a true and correct relationship with one another if our personal relationship with the living God of the Bible is faulty. It is our primary concern before any relationship on earth can be restored, rectified, made correct. I want to tell you of an incident that occurred between myself and a wonderful, wonderful member of the body of Christ. It was while I was in Maine. He's a pastor now, but he was the youth minister at the time that I was there. Well, an incident occurred where I had done something. However, the way it looked could have been very bad. It, it could have been perceived as something quite more horrendous than, than what it was. Not to go into detail of what that was, but he really laid into me. He was my boss. I worked for his family. I worked for him. And he really uh, chewed me up and down, as, as we say. I can't think of any other words. He was, he was quite upset. But I knew that it was not what he thought. But I left it. He said what he had to say harshly. He was, he's not a harsh person. He's actually quite soft. Turns around, walks away. That evening, I did not eat or sleep. I can't remember. I, it was a horrible evening for me. And I went to the Lord. The next morning, upon meeting, 7.30, 8 o'clock that morning, it's fresh. The air is cool. He's there getting ready for work. And I drive up. And the first thing he does, he gets out of his car. And as he's walking straight towards me, the first thing I did, I get out of my car. And I walk straight towards him to face him. To deal with this, I put my pants on, and one way or another, this is getting settled right now. That's my mentality. It always has been. It always will be. And I told him, before we do anything, before you say anything, I went to the Lord last night with almost a tear and a smile. He said, I knew you would go to the Lord. That was the restoring point. It didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter what it was. All it was was that I went to the Lord. He was satisfied with that because you know why? He did too. Our relationships primarily started from our relationship with the Lord. 
And that's how we handled that and rectified that circumstance. I think maybe we hugged, I don't know, but it didn't matter. All I know is that God handled it because we went to the Lord. God restored that and it was a wonderful, wonderful story that I have. So yeah, your personal relationship with God is primary and it does determine all other relationships that person will have with his or her fellow man. Verses four through five. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, we are totally ruined. He measured out the, the allotted land of my people, how he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traders. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Now, few things are happening in these two verses. It's, it's, it's poetic. It's like a song in the Hebrew writing. The, the language, by the way, as Micah writes, it's like a, it's the Hebrew is something to be explained. And you can either do that one of two ways. One, learn Hebrew and then you can get the idea which will take you an incredible amount of time. That most likely is not possible for most individuals. Or have someone who knows Hebrew to explain it to you. But even then, it's really not understood. It can only be understood the best way we can explain it to you. I am one who neither knows Hebrew and or can explain it to you other than what has been explained to me. And this is how it reads. The verse four, in that day, one will take up a taunt against you. It is the best way to describe what a song or a proverb is developed for the circumstance at hand. A taunt which others speak to denote the current condition or situation of a person or group. It becomes a training tool, and in this case, a tool as a warning for others not to do the same thing. So as it reads here, in that day, one will take up a taunt against you. It is a, a song or a, a proverb that will be developed for this particular circumstance, this situation, as a warning for others, don't do this. So right away, the people are developed, or God has allowed a, a development to occur for others to see. Don't rebel against the living God. Don't go against his people. His people are going against his own people. Worse. Worse, that's the proverb that is being uh, sang. That's the taunt. Now, in Exodus chapter 15, we're going to find this similar thing, only on the other side of the coin. It will be the first psalm of the Bible, the psalm of Moses, where Moses will pronounce, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The idea was for the people to learn the song so that they would not forget the victory of the Lord as he saved them from the armies of the Egyptian. The same thing is happening here. Only that this taunt, this proverb, is against the circumstance that is occurring. The lament. It reads here, and they will lament mournfully, saying, we are totally ruined. Uh, he who has measured the allotted land of my people 
uh, how he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. The, the lament, it's equal to that of a funeral. It's a repetitious wailing. Again, the American and most people of the world won't understand that. But in this culture, they had professional wailers during the time of funeral processions, where they would literally give a howling sound that is just, it's just an eerie sound altogether. That's the idea. Now, in the Hebrew culture, and if you yourself were Hebrew, your grandfathers would have told you that, possibly your, even your parents would have taught you that. Maybe you would have heard that. But we, as American, Mauritian, other parts of the world, we don't quite understand what that is. But it is a wailing, it's a mourning. It reads, we are totally ruined. He measures out, uh, uh, removes it from me. Now the, the wailing, by the way, unfortunately, is not sorrow for their actions, but sorrow over the consequence of their actions. And they are repeating what they sowed. That's what we're dealing with here. But again, you're not gonna get that from when you read it. It has to be taught to you. Why do I say that? Because a similar occurrence happened back in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, chapter two, verses two and four. If I could take a moment, let me do that. The book of Judges, chapter two, verses two and four. It reads this. I'll just read the four, the four verses. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. God specifically told them that. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people from before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly, or mainly they looked up and wept with a great uh, weeping. The idea that they looked up is the same idea here in Micah. They were not sorry for what they did. They were sorry for what the consequences were for what they did. True repentance is when we bow to the Lord. True repentance is when we cannot even face him. Wonderful example of the parable from the um, tax collector and the Pharisee who both go to the altar. And the Pharisee proudly says, I tithe twice a week. I'm not like that sinner over there, the tax collector, who, by the way, could not even lift his head to the altar as he knew his sins were great, as he knew he was not worthy to even face the living God. And Jesus says only one went home forgiven that day. The one who was sorry for what he did, not for the consequences that, are come, that have come upon him. Consequences really don't matter anymore. Let me tell you about that. As a seasoned sinner, 
Let me tell you about that. The consequence doesn't even matter. As a matter of fact, consequences almost seem like privileged disciplinary action, as I mentioned. When you realize that you have been forgiven for the action, the consequence, it's almost like a, a medal of honor. Almost like a medal of honor. Sorry about it, but nothing beats the true repentance and true recognition of how you put yourself in that position. So be mindful of that when you go to the Lord asking for forgiveness. Be mindful of that when others come to you to ask for your forgiveness. Are they really sorry for what they did? Or are they sorry because of the consequence that has come upon them for what they did? Verse 5. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Interesting. The land that the Lord had given to them, he has removed. He has removed them from it and has given it to a kind of people that they themselves have become. The Assyrians, treacherous and unholy. It's almost um, fascinating to see that it's not just a blind action that occurred to them. No. The land that was given to them, as a matter of fact, and this is to take note, in the book of Numbers, chapter 36, verse 7, it says this. It says, So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from one tribe to another. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Which is exactly why Naboth was not going to sell his land. He was not going to give it anyway. It was in his family. It was his. Elsewhere, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, interesting. Look what it says. The land shall not be sold permanently. God says, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. God gave them that land. God allotted to them portions of the land to each individual tribe. However, they were not to see it as their own. It belonged to God. It goes on even more so. It's interesting to read uh, what happens when an individual runs into a debt, a problem, and he has to sell his land in order to survive. And someone comes and buys the land. Even someone from outside of their tribe comes and buys the land. However, when the opportunity arises, I believe it was the day of Jubilee, seven years later or so, the land is to be given back to him. You know. Or a member of the family is able to purchase that land, to redeem it, to keep it within the family. And the idea is that it's not really theirs. It belongs to the Lord. But look what the Lord is doing. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. In other words, they lost it. They lost it for real. God took it away from them. God gave it to them. God took it away from them. Was it not Job? that said God gives and takes away. As we heard the song this morning, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and he takes away. Again, not the same as karma. This is a disciplinary action, which we will see as we continue through the book of Micah. It's, this is the beautiful um, understanding of the nature of God. Sinners, I'm sorry, Christians sin. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you different. 
The difference is that Christians should recognize their fault. Christians should go to the Lord with their fault. Christians should go to one another when they have faulted one another. We are seeing what happens when the people of God mistreat the people of God. God deals with it. God deals with it harshly, but it's not a forever. It's not forever. It doesn't have to be. Come to the Lord. The path of blessing for a failed people is to acknowledge their failure and seek the mercy of God. I took that from Chuck Missler. I'm not one to copy-paste quotes and sections of the Bible. I am a firm believer and I encourage that the Holy Spirit is active in living and working in the life of every believer. I believe that each individual should spend quality time in God's Word and that God actually does speak. And for an individual to write down what it is God is saying as he reads through his Word is a lesson for someone to learn, namely the one writing it. That's my uh, motive. That's how I operate. But those commentaries that are out there, they are there to read about what God told them. And this particular one, Chuck Missler, I really like that. He said, the path of blessing for a failed people is to acknowledge their failure and seek the mercy of God. Did he say that? Did he get it from someone else? I don't know, but I got it from him. (laughs) And it moves on. Verse 6. Now we're going to be getting into a section here where the false prophets, today we would call them false teachers, that are out there. Here it is. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. The prophets of the Lord are confident in that the living God is in agreement with their lifestyle as they have preferred to live it. Ezekiel will write about 180 years after this, about 180 years, almost 200 years after this event. Ezekiel will write there in chapter 22, verses 25 and 26, he says, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, speaking of Israel, of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in their midst. Her priests have violated my law, God says, and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Exactly what's happening here. These teachers, these um, prophets, they are not teaching the truth of the circumstance at hand. Number one, because they can't hear the truth of the circumstance at hand. They have followed their hearts for so long that they have now began to teach what they deem is correct. All All at the same time saying... I'm anointed one, I'm a prophet, and I don't deny that they were. But they most certainly have not been hearing from God, because here we have the evidence. They were speaking in the exact contrast of what Micah was speaking, who, in fact, did hear from God. This is why we have to be so cautious, as men and women, even though, especially when someone is reading out of the Bible, 
We are to use the Bible to interpret, in fact, what it is that they are saying from the Bible. Are they, in fact, from God? Did they, in fact, hear from God? Are they, in fact, being led of God's Holy Spirit? Or are they being led of their own hearts? The majority are being led of their own hearts. This is why it's that much easier to determine, to detect a false one from a proper one. There's not many out there. Though there are out there. They are out there. Proper teachers of the Word of God, they are out there. We have to trust the Lord into leading us to find them and to be led of the Lord, to be one of them. Verse 7, house of Jacob. Now, he's, as you see here, the house of Jacob, is, a, is Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So he speaks to the whole nation of Israel, specifically to the north and to the south. Yes, but here, house of Jacob. Should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? Now, interestingly, these three or four questions that are asked, it is uncertain by translators who it is that's speaking. Some translators say the condemned rich rulers are speaking. Some translators say it is the false prophet that is speaking. And yet again, some translators read that Yahweh himself, Yehovah, is speaking. But here in verse 8, recently, as I would clearly see, this to either be God or Micah himself, but recently my people have risen up like an enemy. You stripped off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. Again, Hebrew writing, uh, the language, but let's explain that. God clearly sees that his people are acting like the enemy. How often we see Christians acting like those of the world. Not hard to see. Not hard to see. Our job really is to focus on ourselves. Are we, as Christians, acting like the world? And if we are, let's rectify ourselves. Let's change that. Go to the Lord. God says, his people are acting like the enemy. Now, when it reads here, you stripped off splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently. In Exodus chapter 22, rules and regulations were given to the people of Israel. Children of Israel. There in Exodus chapter 22, verse 26 and 27, one of the rules were this. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge... You shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his only garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. All right? Hey, we run into circumstances, we run into situations where we have to say, I need a favor. I have to borrow something. And the Israelite would say, okay, give me, your, give me your cloak because you said you're going to give it to me by the end of the day because that's how long I'm going to let you borrow it. That's it. You can't take it from me. It's mine. Nothing's wrong with that. But you give me your cloak in the meantime. Now, something happens. He, he's not able to finish. He's not able to give it back to you. But it's now your duty to give him back his coat, his cloak. Why? The evenings are cold. It's all he has. Care for the one that is in debt to you. That was the idea. God cares for his people. 
And so what was happening here, and as you can now read, you strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through, and you do it confidently. They are confidently walking in. Now, it's like this. Like those returning from war. A phrase that really seems out of place in the text, but could actually mean that when Jewish, Jewish soldiers were coming back from war, they would have a sense of security upon entering their own homeland. As it reads there, they're passing through confidently, which Micah points out is not the case at all. Their own people are exploiting their own people. And that's what he's having here, like those returning from war. You take their robes, you rob them. You, what you're doing is you're robbing them. 